Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage all of you listening out there to fill out a brief survey about EconTalk. Just go to our homepage, econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, just under the photo of me, is a link to the survey. Please click it, fill out the survey, so we can continue to make EconTalk better. My guest today is Stephen Marglin, the Walter S. Barker Professor of Economics at Harvard University. He is the author of The Dismal Science, How Thinking Like an Economist Undermines Community. Stephen, welcome to EconTalk. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Your book's an attack on the methodology of economics and, as the subtitle suggests, the economic way of thinking. What is harmful about economics as a discipline in your, in your view? Well, uh, the basic point of the book is that economics is an accessory before and after the fact to what I would regard as the crime of undermining community. Uh, the main actor or a main actor in the undermining of community is the market system, uh, by which I don't mean individual markets. I mean a system which uh, not only allocates goods and services, but shapes us as people. Um, and I, uh, In addition to the market, uh, the state has played an important role in undermining community ever since the, uh, at least the French Revolution. Um, and the worst possible combination is when the state and market get together uh, and the state uses the market, uh, or indeed the market forces use the state, uh, and then it's a particularly lethal uh, combination. But my book concentrates on as writing as an economist about economics, and uh, my book concentrates on what I would regard as an unholy alliance between market and economist. Uh, tell me what you mean by community, because I think the word gets used in two different ways in common discourse, and maybe in your book as well. One sense of the word community is neighborliness, fellow feeling, um, being involved with other people, uh, feeling a part of something bigger than yourself. And the other part is much more about your neighborhood, your town, your village, your block. Uh, do you think that markets are bad for both of those? Well, you, you ask an important question, and uh, you're absolutely right. Community is a plastic word that has meanings that uh, range from European community, which whatever else it is, is not a community, uh, to bedroom community, which is in some sense an oxymoron because it talks about uh, bedroom community as a place where people uh, go to sleep but have nothing in connection, uh, no connection with each other. Um, for me, I think a principal distinction to make is, uh, well, there are many distinctions, but the one that uh, gets it to your question, I think, is uh, the distinction between community and association. Uh, Associations, PTA, uh, Knights of Columbus, um, uh, whatever, uh, Temperance Union. Uh, these are uh, uh, groups that bring people together to pursue uh, a common interest, but basically it's people pursuing their individual interest in conjunction with others who share the same interest. And uh, you join an association to, to accomplish a, uh, an individual goal, and if you think the association is not doing that for you or you lose interest in the goal or you think the goal is accomplished or whatever, you leave the association. The difference with a community is that uh, community uh, people join and they leave, um, but often they're born into communities and they don't uh, uh, have a conscious choice about joining, even if they do have a choice about leaving. Uh, but the difference is that to, to leave a community uh, there's always some cost. It's not a uh, uh, something that you just decide one day that, well, I'm done with that, I'm going to move on. The cost could be economic, the cost could be psychological, uh, but there's a cost, and it's a cost because people identify 
uh, with their community. So uh, a community can be a neighborhood, uh, it, uh, but it's a neighborhood not just of people who happen to be living in on that block. It's a neighborhood of people who are committed to each other in particular ways and for whom uh, to leave that neighborhood would involve some uh, some cost. Um, so the 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 notion of I, the relationship between identity and community is is uh, seems to me central. Um, so will you pick when you talked about association? I I think we know what you mean. Um, you pick some particularly unglamorous examples. Um, let let me pick a few slightly more glamorous or or inspiring ones. And I don't know why you think PTA is not a glamorous, uh, exciting I, example. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something there. But yeah. Okay. I, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of things like my local synagogue or church, um, a group of people I interact with on the internet about a disease that my child might have. Uh, there are lots of associations that we have in in modern market economies that um, have the characteristics you're talking about. That is, it, it's painful to leave. Uh, well, then I would classify them as communities. I so mean, this is a you know I I don't want to insist too much on uh, on any you know the. Um, uh, on a, like a zero one, either you have an association or a community. I mean, it's really a spectrum, and and you're talking about uh, what sociologists call ideal types. That is uh, ways of kind of organizing our thinking. Whereas any real life organization uh, will probably be somewhere in between. You mentioned religious organizations. Um, certainly, in the past, those tended to be more like what I'm calling communities. They were part of our identity, and uh, we left them only at uh, great cost. Uh, I think one of the things that's happened is that um, many, not all, many religious organizations have been transformed or have transformed themselves in keeping with the larger uh, project of modernization into associations so that uh, uh, people feel... Uh, relatively little cost uh, in, in leaving. You mentioned uh, synagogue. Uh, I tell a story in the um, uh, beginning of Chapter 2 of this book about a, a 13th century uh, Jew who uh, wanted to leave his village. And uh, the problem was that to leave his village would have left the, the, the Jewish uh, group not to prejudge the issue, but you'll see where I'm going in a minute, uh, without the ten men that are, were, are necessary for, and to, the, to this day for the Orthodox, for other groups, uh, women uh, now count as uh, part of the group, uh, without the ten men necessary for certain prayers. So the question came up to one of the lead, to the leading, actually, and that's how we know, that's how it's remembered, Brought to us today because it was brought to one of the to the leading rabbi of the day, uh, who ruled that this man could not leave unless he found a replacement. Um, now, uh, uh, that's quintessential community that you don't have the option just of because the grass is greener on the other side of uh, taking advantage of it regardless of what it does to your uh, fellow members. Uh, but you know that would be unthinkable today in a, in a uh, uh, in certainly in an American Jewish uh, organization or any other religious organization. We our individualism has progressed so far that uh, the idea that a community could uh, restrict one's mobility in that sense is just uh, unthinkable. Nor am I recommending. By the way, let me be very clear about that. I'm not recommending that we. Uh, go back to the uh, 13th century and impose this the kinds of restrictions that uh, uh, a rabbi could in good conscience uh, impose on his um, uh, fellow Jews. Well, I, I'm, I think that's a great example, and, and if uh, you have another compelling example in your discussion in the book about the Amish that, I, that I'd like to come, come to eventually. But in today's world, while rabbis don't... Um, order their congregants around with that level of uh, ease, there's still, I would argue, are, are a great deal of, of the kind of community feelings in 
in Jewish organizations and in other religions and in other associations we make that have community aspects to them. I'm, I don't want to fight over the association community, meaning I understand your point. My question is, why? By the way, I agree with you completely. So let's go on to so, some. So, so here's so here's the question: Why do you think we have so? Your claim is that we don't have a lot of this. That markets and 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 the and capitalism is how I would you know broadly define it. That capitalism is destroying those communities, and yet we have some. And for all I know, we have as much or maybe more than we had two hundred and five hundred and and eight hundred years ago. How, how would you know? Well, that's a, and, and, and I'm going to press you a little bit more. How would you know that what has been lost, and there has been something lost, I don't mean to suggest that, that it's equally good or better, but how would you know whether what's lost and gained in that transition is good or bad? Well, uh, that's a judgment I think each person has to make for himself. This is, there no, I don't think it's an amenable to uh, statistical uh, calculation or quantitative um, uh, measures. And my argument is uh, twofold. One is that, the, as you suggest, uh, that the balance has shifted markedly since uh, an earlier time, and uh, uh, not in a way that uh, favors uh, the realization of people as in, in their humanity, because our humanity is based in large part on our relations with other people, on our on our human connections. Secondly, my argument is really about economics in the sense that uh, economics can't even ask the question that you're asking because it's very assumptions, blind economists to community. Everything is reduced to individuals, and the question that you ask about balance, or the question that I put in this book about balance, and uh, the question of uh, gains and losses is not one which you can analyze in terms of standard economics because economics is absolutely blind to the existence of community. Economics can take account of association, and that's why the distinction is important. Uh, but it really, it's very assumptions. It's, it's individualistic uh, bias. It's assumptions about uh, the nature of knowledge. It's assumptions about what makes life fulfilling. And for the economists, it's more goods, more goods, more goods. Uh, the assumption about community, in, and there is a community for economists, but there's only one, and it's the community of the nation-state. And no other community uh, has any uh, meaning for economists. So uh, that, that my fundamental critique in this book, uh, as I said, is twofold. One, it's about markets undermining community. And I don't say destroying. I, you know, I was tried to be careful in the choice of words because I agree with you that community does survive, uh, human relationships survive, and wherever human relationships survive that are based on a, a real commitment to each other, then we have some sort of community. So that does survive, but it is being, it's, it's being continually pushed into the corner, continually marginalized, continually undermined by the spread of uh, market and the, spread of the, and the sway of the, the nation-state. Um, over our lives, and um, uh, economics is, as I say, the uh, facilitator, the uh, the accessory before and after the fact. Well, I, I agree with a lot of that, uh, and as you point out, we have something to say as economists about associations. I think my colleague James Buchanan written about it eloquently in talking mm -hmm. about clubs. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I also agree that, and we've talked about it a lot here on Econ Talk, that that modern theoretical economics is is strikingly sterile uh, in its limits uh, to talk about the kind of things you talk about, which are of course, to a large extent, the sources of deep joy and satisfaction and meaning in our lives that go beyond how many potatoes and how many shirts and how many iPods we have. But it's interesting that at an older time that wasn't the case. Uh, Adam Smith was deeply interested, I think, in these issues. Uh, he didn't shove them into a utility function because he was fortunate enough or not to be able to – now, he didn't have one, didn't have the theory. Uh, but he argued, and I, I think you disagree, so I want to hear your take. He argued that the market economy 
enhanced our virtues, that it made us more fellow feeling, it, that it made us aware of, of, our, of our neighbors. So do you think he was wrong or was he only thinking about a limited case in those days? Well, uh, I think he, he was on this point. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I disagree with Adam Smith. I, I know that's probably a, uh, not a virtue for an economist to disagree with our founding daddy. But, um, You're not going to get hit by lightning, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, well, I'm, I I'm okay. just waiting. I'm, <laughs> I'm just looking out the window. I don't see the bolt. Um, I, I think, you know, Adam Smith was <laughs> a lot of wisdom in... Uh, the wealth of nations. There's a lot of wisdom in the theory of moral sentiments. I wish economists would read uh, either, but preferably both of those books, rather than just uh, pay lip service and uh, quote Smith out of uh, context. So, Agreed. Uh, that's probably something, yes, of which we uh, surely agree. Um, but on this point, I think uh, Smith and, and uh, many followers uh, down to the present day um, have uh, uh, gone off track. Uh, so, I mean, Smith makes this classic argument. It's one of the most quoted uh, uh, sentences from um, The Wealth of Nations, that it is not to the fellow feeling of our uh, suppliers, the butcher, the baker, and the brewer, that we look for our daily sustenance. It's to their interests. We don't appeal to their sympathy. We appeal to their interest. Um, why? Well, he, he doesn't quite go the next step, but others have gone in, in uh, re- more recent times. Basically, the argument is that this way we economize, uh, to use a favorite word of our, of our discipline, we economize on that scarce resource of fellow feeling, which we can then apply uh, in other circumstances. Well, my take on this is that uh, fellow feeling is something that if you, you don't use it, you lose it. And... Um, uh, that the idea that there's, it's a, a good and fixed supply that we have to economize on um, is to totally misunderstand uh, the nature of sympathy, fellow feeling, love, to be sure. Uh, so um, I, I, I do disagree with, uh, with that view of, um, uh, uh, with that particular argument of Smith. Yeah, the economizing on love, I think, comes from a quote by Dennis Robertson. Well, that... Yes, but I, 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 you're right, and I, uh, I, I do make reference to and that it, particular it, quote in the book, but um, I think it's implicit. If you ask the question, why do we appeal to uh, interests rather than to um, uh, fellow feeling, uh, uh, and that is from Smith, I think the implicit answer is we is the same one that uh, uh, Robertson gives. Uh, could, I could be wrong. I, I mean, I you no, know, no. I think you're right. I, I can't I, get in in the head of somebody who's been dead for uh, more than two hundred years. But uh, my reading of Smith is that he would uh, he would uh, accept the emendation of Robertson, and indeed the same emendation of uh, the former president of my university, Larry Summers, uh, who made uh, a very similar argument in uh, talking about. Um, uh, in, in, talking about uh, this uh, range of issues. No, I, I think you're totally right. I think that, in fact, I, I think in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith's talk, Smith talks about the difficulty of empathizing with the victims of a Chinese earthquake mm-hmm. uh, because we have a limited amount of, of love. Now, you know, I agree with you that love has something of a public good aspect to it, to use mm-hmm. some uh, inappropriate jargon. Um, <laughs> I think the real issue. I, I call it a hyper public good, but <laughs> uh, I, we're in agreement on this too. I think the real issue is time, uh, which is is not a public uh, infinite of infinite supply, a good of, of infinite supply. But um, let let's hone in on this issue of of the source of the undermining of community because I think it's it's deeply interesting and and uh, it's somewhat elusive. Let me ask it this way, relative to Adam Smith. Uh, Smith pointed out that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, an insight I think that's greatly underappreciated in terms of understanding the world around us. But as I understand your argument, what is undermining community are really two things about the market economy. One is that specialization that that causes us, uh, encourages us, a better word, encourages us to find 
uh, the, the, the stuff of our lives from far away and from strangers. And the other is mobility, uh, which is related to the market, but not, not completely. Are those the two culprits that you're, that you want to say are undermining community or is it, is it deeper than that? Well, I hadn't, I don't put it exactly that way. So I have to, you know, think about what you're saying and, um, uh, respond to you, um, uh, you know, off the cuff as it were. I mean, I put. Let me first, let me go back to the way I put it, and yeah, then let's say try it to come and re- relate yeah. that to um, uh, how you've just put it. Um, I give an example of uh, of what, the, the general argument uh, in the form of um, uh, insurance, and the story I tell is this: um, I'm looking out, even as we speak, at my barn, in which houses three horses. Um, if my barn were to burn down. Uh, I would call my insurance agent, who would presumably send out an adjuster to verify that the barn had been burned down, uh, and verifying that would cut me a check for uh, whatever the barn is insured for. Uh, And I would then hire a contractor, and the contractor would hire various subs and laborers, and uh, in space that would probably be much longer than I would like, uh, the barn would be rebuilt. Um, How was it done... 100, 200 years ago. How is it still done? You mentioned the Amish. How is it still done by the Amish? Um, I don't know if you're of a vintage that remembers the Harrison Ford movie, The Witness, in which... Uh, One of my favorite movies. Phenomenal. You know, it seems to be everybody's favorite movie, because every time I ask this, expecting uh, that half the people will say, no, I don't know that movie. Everybody says, oh yeah, that was a great movie. Well, you probably remember one of the great scenes in that movie where there's a barn raising and there are the happy guys putting up the barn and the happy women cooking the food and the happy kids playing around. Um, And it all seems to be an exercise in nostalgia and good fun. Uh, My argument is that there's a very serious purpose behind uh, getting the community together for barn raising, and that is that this economic reliance on one's uh, fellow members of the community reinforces all those ties of affinity uh, that hold people together, and that uh, it's that the, these ties of economic necessity are an important part of what holds a uh, community together. Uh, now, the economists will generally say yes, but uh, you know, there's a, a survival of the fittest here, and uh, the w- way of doing of rebuilding barns using insurance companies and specialist labor and so forth uh, has shown itself, survival of the fittest has shown itself to be more efficient. Um, My response to that is that if what you're interested in is barns, or even indeed if what you're interested in is the individual uh, who uses the barn, uh, then the the economist's argument is is, uh, probably right. It is more efficient to... uh, Use specialist labor and uh, and the market, uh, which facilitates that specialization, as you say, uh, in order to uh, rebuild barns that burn down. But if you're interested in the community of people who use those barns, uh, then I think uh, the the Amish position of uh, not allowing insurance, not allowing insurance, rejecting the market. When it undermines community, uh, is something that we can learn from. What do we learn? Well, I have no desire to become an Amishman. That's not the, the lesson. The lesson is that markets ought to be scrutinized for what they do to community. Insurance is a you know homely example, but uh, it seems to me we're hearing a lot these days in the election campaign, and a lot of it is just froth, uh, especially because they're electioneering in, uh, in Ohio even as we speak, uh, about NAFTA and the loss of jobs. But there's a real issue there. And, uh, again, the issue from the, the conclusion that I draw there from this is um, that uh, free trade or the extension of free trade, as embodied in NAFTA, for example, uh, should, should be subject to a scrutiny of what uh, free trade, outsourcing, etc., does to the uh, community, and we have no uh, effective provision for that in our uh, in our in our governance in uh, modern society. 
Let's so, how does that relate? No, that's a, that's. I think that's that's great. Okay. Um, l- l- let me ask you some questions about that that um, that analysis. The um, I'm reminded of, of you know we have four kids and we were, so do I and we were blessed at the birth of each of our kids to receive uh, dinner every night for about two weeks sometimes a little longer um, from our uh, members of our of our synagogue and it's a glorious thing somebody every day a different person shows up with a with a with a meal now some people are busy and they buy a meal they go they do some, a takeout meal somewhere but most people cook their own uh and it's of course inefficient um busy people you've already cooking sometimes there's some economies of scale you're cooking for yourself and you make extra for the people who've just had a baby but most of us have the in the communities i've been in have the habit of making a home-cooked meal and um we all understand that there's something special about that um that's not amenable to economics uh as typically described in the in the textbook case so I, one i'd say in our lives we do have some of that and it's a question as you say a balance right um but i'm struck by the amish example i mean it's a beautiful example the the uh and you have an even more dramatic example of the refusal to take uh, federal aid to help a kid who's sick mm-hmm. which uh is it's a very interesting example of, of the value that that community places on their community right but most of us don't want that um, so I think the reason the Amish are so small, uh, as a community and, and haven't been copied in a, in different forms, there's obviously ways you can have that feeling of community without the religious aspects, but the reason that they're small communities... By the way, I'm not sure about that. Uh, that, that they're that communes. Me, that seems well, and what looks what's happened to, the com- to communes. As soon as, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but I, I think you may, this is an important point. What happens? What's happened in the communes? I mean, I'm a you know child of the '60s in a sense. It was my second childhood, but anyway. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know what would happen is, uh, for the most part, uh, as soon as you ran into some difficulty, the communes would split because there was not this commitment uh, that is necessary for community. There was no shared tradition. There was no shared. Uh, sense of values and, and, and or consensus about how to proceed to resolve these difficulties, and no commitment to uh, maintain the community in the face of uh, these difficulties. And I, I mean, I I think it's a very important question, but I wouldn't regard it as um, uh, resolved that you uh, don't need something like religious values. Um, not any particular set of religious values, but some set of religious or quasi-religious values uh, that give you that um, shared uh, set of convictions and shared set of uh, traditions that uh, um, allow you to get through the difficult times. Yeah, to, but it, you're right. To bear those costs is, yeah. is expensive, and right. you're not denying that. I wouldn't right. either. Absolutely. And the kibbutz movement in Israel has struggled to sustain itself. It had a set of shared values, but they were not sufficiently robust, I think. Uh, the ideals of that movement are having trouble surviving in the modern age. Uh, this is true. I but, think, uh, to me, uh, yes, uh, it, it's, a, again, a question I would very much like to investigate. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. But don't know the answer yeah. to, I think there are lots of things happened to the kibbutz movement, but one of them is surely what you said. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and, it, and it ties into the issue we haven't, talked yet about with this mobility issue the mm-hmm. freedom of movement mm-hmm. uh how do you keep them down on the farm after they've seen paris mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. be the the old version of that right um the nostalgia as you mentioned that we feel for that in that barn building scene which is and it's enhanced by the way by a tremendous musical uh, score <laughs> that that seems really a glorious scene uh but that nostalgia we feel in wasn't felt as much by many of the participants because they left those communities, not the Amish per se, but but the small town, more cooperative life that I think we romanticize and and sometimes yearn for. But I want to get get to your trade point because I think that's a uh, uh, the more interesting question. You said that some of these applications of markets should be scrutinized. For me, the challenge is who, who's going to do the scrutinizing? You've indicted the nation state, and I think I'm sympathetic to that. 
uh, as the nation states incentives by the participants and the power there, the politicians, are, are not uh, particularly um, benevolent. So how can we structure, for someone who accepts your view that, say, a free trade agreement is destructive of community, how can we structure that scrutiny? How might we structure it? It's a big question. How might we structure it to make sure that it doesn't fall prey to uh, the political machinations of special interests, which, of course, are where the, many of the opposition, much of the opposition to those agreements comes from? Um, I don't have a good answer for you. I wish I did. If I did, it would be in the book. Um, what I'm, I frankly am hoping is that uh, the conversation we're having now, the book itself, uh, will stimulate uh, you and me and many others to think seriously about your question and to come up with real answers. I mean, I can say to you that I think that, uh, uh, you know, I, I do share your uh, distrust of the nation state uh, in this regard. Um, and I, I see a much larger role for local government and local uh, organizations to um, have some role in, uh, for example, uh, whether uh, firms can uh, just shut down plants and move because it's cheaper to produce and, as it was in, uh, under NAFTA in Mexico, now in China or wherever, um, and that, that uh, communities ought to have some uh, participatory role in this. Now, exactly how you balance the uh, interests, the various interests and the various concerns, um, I, I don't have a, a good answer. But uh, once you pose the question this way, it's very different from the idea that uh, outsourcing is always good and the pie and that what we ought to focus on is the size of the pie and uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs and so forth and so on. Uh, this way that you pose the question is a very different way of looking at it from what I think the dominant um, uh, view is um, in, the, uh, uh, in the economics profession, at least, if not in the country at large. I guess the other alternative is to think about preaching, which is what your book really is 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 part of that agenda. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I salute the lack of easy solutions that you that you do not provide. I think that's a part of. Sorry for the double negative, but um, I think that's one way to get there from here. If you care about these things, and many people do, uh, is to preach, is to encourage people to buy local, which I think is a, a growing movement in the United States. Yeah. Um, and encourage people to do activities and uh, make their economic choices accordingly. Uh, Personally, I think that is not fully uh, as virtuous as as its proponents believe, but maybe I'm wrong and let people uh, choose accordingly. Ironically, that solution is part of the individual choice paradigm that you're not um, as big a fan of, I I know, from the book. But... that is a you know a less coercive um, way to get there from here. Well, I, you know, I think there's, these are not either or. I, I fully uh, support what you just put forward that um, uh, people ought to take account of their the effects of what their their actions are buying uh, locally versus buying from uh, uh, large chains that are uh, outsourcing their. Uh, uh, Production, their suppliers. Um, so that, that's not uh, that's not in any way contradictory to uh, the idea that the community ought to have some uh, organized uh, role and voice in uh, decisions which are now thought of as the prerogative of um, uh, uh, to use a word that uh, I don't use in the book very much: uh, capital. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I'm meaning the corporation. I mean, it's you know, it's now thought of it's a business decision whether the, whether uh, IBM is going to um, produce something here or produce it in uh, uh, China is a business decision which local communities uh, have no role in. So um, uh, that's what I'm 
that's what I'm arguing against, that this should be, that, the, that other, there are other stakeholders which ought to have a voice, including uh, those of local uh, organizations who, where uh, people are going to be severely impacted. Uh, the, you know, you, you spoke about mobility um, uh, a few moments ago, and uh, let's come back to that for a minute because um, uh, the, I don't know if you read the Washington Post, you might avoid it on. Uh, I subscribe on, to it, sir. You subscribe. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so you read Dana Milbank from time to time, time. who's an op-ed sure. contributor. Uh-huh. Uh, well, he was, before he became an op-ed com- contributor to the Post, he was a staff reporter on the Wall Street Journal, and many years ago, uh, he wrote a wonderful piece, which I cite in this uh, in the Dismal Science, uh, about what happens when people take the advice of economists seriously, namely mobility, that uh, you lose your job, well, don't, don't, you know, don't settle for a second-rate job with McDonald's or whatever. Follow the money. Go where the you know go where the good jobs are. Uh, well, that's great if you're 25 and unattached and uh, you know you want to see the world. Uh, but he follows a family. Uh, I think the man's name is Jackie Vanya, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he follows what happens to this family as they uh, take the advice that the economics profession dishes out and go and follow the money. And it leads to all kinds of problems uh, that, uh, that you can imagine, I'm sure, as a parent. The kids have trouble uh, making friends, relocating, starting new schools. Uh, his, uh, uh, both he and his wife have similar problems of uh, commitment. The marriage is on the rocks. They move several times. The last time they move, uh, they have to shoot the family dog because there's no room for the dog in the van. So it's a... It's a tale of increasing misery of woe as uh, the Vanya family uh, follows the money. So They only again, shot the dog? They didn't have to drag it behind the car so it died a painful <laughs> death? Couldn't you make the story more depressing? <laughs> I, well, it's not my story. I just, oh, uh, but it, you know, it's an interesting, I tell you, I quit that story when it first appeared because those were the days before this was you know the early 90s and it was such a striking story i never knew how i might use that story but it, it struck me as i read it at the time as you know i'm sure the wall street journal is uh, distinguished by having some of the best reporting in the in the country and uh, a reporting which is often at 180 degrees uh, off from its editorial pages What's going to happen now under the new Rupert Murdoch regime, God knows, but uh, that was certainly the case for, for many, many years. So, uh, But, I, you know, I, as I say, I've I, I clipped this story never knowing where and when it might be uh, surf, resurfaced in my life um, in those days before, uh, you know, everything being archived on the web. I, you, you either clipped it or you lost it. Yeah. Um, but it's it stuck with me ever since, and it does seem to me, again, it's, it's, it is a question of balance, because certainly there are gains from uh, mobility, and uh, uh, the economics profession is, I think, uh, very clear about what those gains are, but we don't take account, and we have no real way of doing it, because the gains are in, in terms which are, I think, resist quantification and uh, statistical measurement. Uh, there are also losses. Uh, I, w- I would say only a bad economist would say follow the money uh, and take the job that pays the most. I, on the last day of my class, almost every class I've taught in 28 years of teaching, I tell my students, don't take the job that pays the most money, at least as a general rule. Um, it might be the best job to take, but certainly that is – if you if you think that's the lesson of this class, you've, you've learned nothing. Um, and, I, and I do think it's – as much as I share your – uh, indictment of mainstream economic theory as being sterile and missing out on certain things. I think to a large extent, economics does try and capture some of these things. We don't capture it very well. Uh, but let me say something in defense of mobility um, and, and add something, I think, on your argument. Uh, I moved a lot as a kid, and as a result, I have no close childhood friends, um, and I've lost something from that. And, and you point out, I think, very point, very poignantly and incorrectly that mobility takes a toll on the community that gets left behind. It also takes a toll on the people who move, as in the cases that you've just, just told. 
but those are the downsides. Most people know it. It's why people stick in their hometown. It's why people don't leave every poor nation and, and come to the richer nations. It's scary. You lose, you know, I, I look at immigrants to the United States and I see the incredible losses that they have. They, they raise, besides leaving behind their, their many friends and family, they raise kids who aren't like them, who become, quote, Americans with different values, often you know, opposed to the, to the parents. So I, I think the most of the costs of, of, of mobility are, are pretty well recognized by people, but the gains are so glorious in most cases, not, not the family you chronicle, but the, in most cases, that it's worth it. And I, it seems to me it's a good thing, more or less. Uh, and so many good things about it. Our students, you and I, I'm sure, are blessed with lots of students who come from all over the world to be at our respective universities. I wouldn't want to be teaching at my parents' hometown. Uh, I, I miss my parents. I wish I lived closer to them. They live in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm happier at George Mason than at the University of Alabama at Huntsville if I could get a job there. But more importantly, I'm glad they're not in Poland because I, you know, I'd have been killed in, they'd have been killed in the Holocaust probably. So mobility has so many good things. The bad things, don't you think people are pretty aware of them? Uh, I agree with everything but the last part. I don't think people, I, I, well, people, uh, people may be aware of them. I think um, when economists sign on, as economists do, uh, blindly to free trade. I remember at the time of NAFTA, uh, you know, this was complex legislation that uh, hundreds of pages, um, and I'm doubtful that the vast number of economists who, who signed petitions uh, or full-page petition, full-page ads in favor of uh, you know that appeared in the newspapers in favor of uh, the legislation enabling NAFTA. Uh, I doubt that they've read the legislation. I doubt that they most of them, frankly, have thought much about it. Free trade is a good thing. Uh, we, we should be for we're economists. We should be for free trade. Um, and so I, I think there's a difference between the people who uh, think about these things and the economics profession, which I think is quite blind to them. You have a lot of interesting things to say about knowledge and experience and the implications for uh, equilibrium analysis. I, I'm not quite sure how it relates to the general discussion, but I, I wanted you to – I had to read those chapters fairly quickly. I apologize. But I'd like to hear you talk about them because I found that uh, – the parts I did read to be extremely interesting. Yeah. Well, I think there is a connection. I mean, the, the, you know, I do – I'm afraid I sometimes do go off on tangents that may uh, – I didn't mean as a criticism. I no, just, no, no, no. It's, 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 it's a fair point. I, I – you know, I had to wrestle with how much do I allow these tangents to to uh, remain, and um, uh, some of the discussion of knowledge is not absolutely germane to community, but a lot of it is. Um, I mean, that you talked about uh, experiential knowledge, um, and the argument of the book is that uh, first of all, that that uh, <clears throat> there are various kinds of knowledge which we as people deploy, and that, that that is part of our humanity, that we have access to different kinds of knowledge. Um, and I talk about two kinds without trying to argue that that exhausts all forms of knowledge available to people, but what I talk about is uh, what I call algorithmic knowledge, and as a second uh, kind of knowledge, uh, <clears throat> experiential knowledge. Algorithmic knowledge is the, the knowledge of... Uh, uh, typified by a proposition in Euclidean geometry. Uh, you have a bunch of axioms, supposedly self-evident truths, and they're you know, really pretty straightforward and small in number. You have rules of logic, and you get from these axioms to all kinds of powerful uh, conclusions. I remember being very impressed in high school when I really thought about what we'd done when we proved the Pythagorean theorem. We could take this back to four or five axioms, and we had demonstrated that the square of the long side of the triangle, a hypotenuse, was equal to the sum of the squares of the short side uh, of a right triangle. Really remarkable. We didn't go out and measure a bunch of triangles to get to that uh, conclusion. We did it purely through rational deduction from so-called self-evident first principles. It's hard to believe it's true, isn't it? But it is, yeah. It's a be- yeah. It is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing, and, and, and it is uniquely human that we have uh, uh, access to this as well as to experiential knowledge. Uh, computers can do the, the Pythagorean theorem real well, uh, 
my horses have a lot of experiential knowledge. They know when somebody comes out there who's afraid of them. They know when somebody comes out there who's comfortable with them. And uh, they have, they, they've learned this from experience, um, uh, not from uh, algorithm. Uh, but we as human beings have both. Um, now, this is a broader cr- criticism than of economics, but economics is kind of the cutting edge of modern uh, uh, knowledge in the sense that it takes one kind of knowledge, this uh, what I call algorithmic knowledge, and, uh, you, and, and uh, argues that that is, at the very least, uh, the most respectable kind of knowledge, and at the most, the only kind of knowledge. And it, that it, uh, experiential knowledge uh, is knowledge only to the extent that it is uh, verified <clears throat> by uh, algorithm. Now, uh, I regard that as pure ideology, which doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's uh, it's beyond. It's not something that is anybody's ever proven. It's dogma. And, what? It's dogma. Dogma. <laughs> um, and uh, that it's a it's a peculiarly modern Western uh, dogma about knowledge that economics has taken over. Um, well, first of all, what does this have to do with community? Well, it has a lot to do with community because experiential knowledge is encoded in community and it's encoded in, it's always transmitted through human relationships, personal relationships. Uh, it's always um, uh, develops through relationships uh, and can't be separated. Uh, from community. Algorithm, by contrast, is a purely individualistic thing. I mean, we, we, uh, uh, we you know, it, it, it thrives basically uh, in an individualistic uh, context. Um, <clears throat> so there, there is a connection to, um, uh, to community. But you asked about what does this have to do with equilibrium theory and so forth, and that really is from the point of view of, of uh, the general argument of the book, uh, a tangent, but it's an important one because when I'm trying to argue, the, the larger point I'm trying to argue there is that economics is impoverished even on its own terms, in terms of trying to understand uh, a world which is largely individualistic, uh, and even on, in terms of the things that economics takes seriously, community is not one of them, uh, that this peculiar, what I would regard as peculiar ideology of knowledge, really um, uh, enfeebles economics as a tool for understanding. Let me take one of the patron saints of uh, your university or your university's economics department anyway, a man whom I greatly admire as uh, one of the great economists of the 20th century, uh, Friedrich uh, von Hayek. Um, it all comes back to Hayek on this podcast, and it all comes back to the use of knowledge in society, a paper we often talk about. Well, it's uh, a great and you, paper. And you reference, yeah, it's a great paper. It, it's a great paper, and um, you know this history, but some of our listeners might not. Yeah, go ahead. That this paper was written uh, in response to a um, debate about the, it's, it's usually said, the feasibility of socialism. Well, it really wasn't about the feasibility of socialism, that's a... Uh, that was a much broader issue. But for economists, the issue was, could you have an efficient allocation of resources through a socialist economy? Top-down. Top-down. And, um, uh, you know, we don't have to re- try to recapitulate the whole debate, but I think the important points to make here is, first of all, that uh, economists like Oscar Lange and Abba Lerner uh, argued Yes, you could, because basically you could do something which they didn't really have a vocabulary for at the time. We have it now. But basically virtual markets, that is, you could do everything. uh, Now you could imagine doing it with computers. They were talking about in the 1930s when they were writing, 30s and 40s, they were talking about doing uh, the kinds of things that markets do in terms of allocating resources, doing it all on paper, and uh, never having to have real markets, but being able to achieve uh, the results of markets. So the market is then treated as some kind of analog computer, basically, uh, and um, uh, as a big calculating device. Now, Hayek's intervention in this debate 
was to say, this is my interpretation, of course, but I stand by this interpretation, would be to say that that, interp- that, that, that understanding of the market as an analog computer is based on a faulty notion of knowledge. Uh, now, I'm using my vocabulary, not his, but uh, in my terminology, that uh, the longer learner view that you could do it all on paper uh, without real markets uh, assumes that all knowledge is algorithmic, that all knowledge can be articulated in the form of basically of the Pythagorean theorem. You could look, ex- look it up in a book or survey people and ask them the question, they'd give you the answer that you need. Right, right. So, you, you know, you go through a bunch of trial and error stuff and you uh, uh, get responses from local production units about how much would you produce if the price were X and how much would you produce if the price were Y and so forth and so on. You converge on an on a, uh, optimal allocation. Now, Hayek's point was that that would work if, indeed, all knowledge was algorithmic. But then, in fact, a good part of knowledge is what I would call experiential. Uh, that you, This is knowledge that you have in your fingertips, perhaps, uh, but that you can't articulate. Uh, and you have it from uh, a lifetime of experience in the field, or you have it from having a superior intuition or imagination. Um, a point, by the way, that was echoed by economists as diverse as John Maynard Keynes and Joseph Schumpeter, diverse in their political Correct. orientation. Uh, but Hayek made the point most clearly, and uh, he, basically he was arguing, I think, that unless you have to put your money where your mouth is, or maybe even where your mouth isn't, because mm-hmm. you don't even know until you're called upon to act, uh, then you can't, you, you, you don't really have this uh, knowledge. So you can never uh, articulate the knowledge in the way that the um, other side, the longer learner side, uh, thought could be done because most of the relevant knowledge might not even be known to the uh, people, the, the so called possessors of the knowledge, until they had to act on it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, well, that's, that's beautifully said, and I and I think uh, it reminds me that that paper is often misinterpreted. The deepest insight of that paper is missed because I think people often assume that Hayek was saying, you know, the computer would have to be too big. You'd have to ask too many questions. Right. It would take too long. I agree. Because there's so many products, and you'd have to ask people how much, you know, you'd have to get their demand curve for each product. Right. Right. But your point, which is spectacular, and I think it is exactly Hayek's point, is that it's not a question of computing power and time. It's a question of of feasibility, not on practical terms, but on the very essence of the nature of the knowledge that needs to be gathered. Tell the story you give about cooking, because I think it's a beautiful example. <laughs> well, I am an amateur cook, and um, uh, every now and again people flatter me to ask me for the recipe of something I've cooked. And I said, well, I can I can tell you what I put in it, but I can't tell you how much. If you want to know how much, you've got to come look over my shoulder, because I don't know how much until I do it. Um, so, And I think, that, you know, again, that's really Hayek's point. You don't know until you're, you're called upon to take the... Uh, the action, and uh, that actions in this case speak a lot louder and they, than uh, words. They speak very differently from words. We don't have the words always. Uh, and so uh, the, the, there's, there's one other thing to say about, well, two other things to say about this. First is that the irony, I think, is that the economics profession for a long time uh, regarded uh, uh, Hayek as the loser in that debate. Uh, and that the the pro uh, I don't want to say pro socialist because it sounds well, the like calculation the calculation people yeah the pro calculation people uh, were the uh, were the winners in the debate and um, uh, and that had a lot to do with the development of general equilibrium theory which uh, in the forties and fifties and sixties um, which made it which reinforced this idea that the market was nothing more than an analog computer. Whereas, in fact, I think it, what the market does well is to uh, mobilize this kind of knowledge, this experiential knowledge, 
which is invisible to economists. I mean, that's, that's the real irony in this. Uh, so why am I not a Hayekian? Why am I? Uh, well, you are. You know, to some why extent. am I on the other side yeah. of the political spectrum? Well, I am. You know, I, I do admire Hayek. I, as I say, I think he's one of the great economists of the uh, uh, 20th century. Um, but I, I think that, uh, that you have to temper. I temper my enthusiasm for Hayek uh, by. What is it that the market is actually uh, doing so well? Well, it's producing more and more goods. Uh, now, in large parts of the world, that's still the you know the prime necessity. Uh, and I don't, uh, you know, I'm not. This is I'm, my, my argument is not one that the poor should stay poor and that the uh, that uh, <clears throat> people, kids should die of uh, curable diseases before the age of five. Uh, this is not my shtick at all. Um, but in the rich part of the world, where you and I live, uh, we've long since reached the point where we have plenty of goods in the sense of what, you know, going back to Adam Smith, what people need to lead a dignified, uh, uh, decent life in terms of a material standard of living. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I have a chapter in this book uh, which is uh, titled Why is Enough Never Enough? And I go through the arguments, some of them standard and some of them not, um, about uh, overconsumption, if you want to put it that way. So, you know, this tempers my enthusiasm for Hayek as the argument applies to uh, our condition today. I don't think the need is for more and more and more uh, production, um, and again, there, you know, they give several arguments for this. The argument I emphasize in the dismal science is what the pursuit of more and more and more does to our human relationships. Um, the I think the more common argument, and I don't, uh, I don't dispute the argument, but it's not mine. Uh, it's not the one I emphasize in this book. The more common argument is that. Uh, uh, the pursuit of more and more and more is threatening a, a very fragile and delicate um, ecology. Uh, and I feel like I, you know that may be true. I don't have to take a position on that because I think it's threatening uh, a delicate uh, ecology of human relationships uh, so that even if the most wildly optimistic uh, people about uh, possibilities for addressing our natural ecology through technological fixes, even if they turned out to be right, uh, I, I think they'd be wrong about uh, the pursuit of growth because of what it does to our human relationships. Well, let me just add one point about Hayek that I think is uh, ironic. He, he was very aware uh, in the fatal conceit of this tension between the close interpersonal relationships that you're championing and the, what do you call the extended order of cooperation, uh, the market economy where we interacted with strangers. I've read the quote many times on the, on the show, but uh, I'll just describe it here that, that Hayek felt we had to be of two minds. We had to interact with our friends and loved ones differently than we acted out in the world. The, the attempt to have a market economy among our friends and family was horrifying. Mm -hmm. And the attempt to extend the relationships of the family to a wider realm was also dangerous uh, and destructive. And of course, I mean, we can disagree, P people could disagree about whether, where to draw that border. Uh, but I think a good economist recognizes that. I, I wanna mention one thing about the equilibrium theory, another area of agreement we have, which I think is very interesting, um, you alluded to the calculation people winning the debate, and I just want to mention for our listeners, so modern economics in some sense was born in, in 1948 with the Foundations of Economic Analysis by Samuelson, and the, the subsequent work in that mode, which is the individualistic mode that you're, that you're critiquing, uh, you know, done by people like Arrow and Hahn and Debreu in establishing the the equilibrium aspects of economics, and then the, the welfare analysis. That is, what could we conclude about people's well-being interacting in that world? Well, it created a very Hayekian conclusion, which is that under certain conditions, 
letting people make free choices, everything turns out perfectly. And I think you know that analysis is is wrong on about a hundred counts. Um, and what's interesting is that it became at the time it was a defense of of capitalism to some extent, but it opened up the opportunity for people to raise issues of when the the assumptions didn't hold and uh, allowed a critique of of true free market, whatever you want to call it, capitalism. Uh, and I, you know it's interesting, you and I, I think, agree on the sterility issue. Uh, and we I think we agree on on many, many things like that. But the welfare analysis, and and I think we probably agree on the on the reliability of of traditional welfare economics. And I, where we disagree, I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> uh, it fascinates me. Actually, I was going to ask you. You know, you asked why you didn't you don't go to where Hayek is. I suspect maybe you're closer to him than than you think, or he's closer to you. But maybe maybe not. Well, let me. Um, I'm I'm glad to have. You know, I'm glad to associate myself with Hayek where we agree and didn't, you know, disagree where we disagree. Um, I, the quote you referred to a little bit earlier, uh, I guess that sounds to me like we probably disagree on how where those boundaries should be drawn, and I would probably uh, draw them much draw the boundary between uh, uh, uh the circle of we, as I to use a phrase of Richard Rorty, mm-hmm. um, uh, and who's outside that circle. And I guess I want to push that circle outwards and and um, uh, not limit it to uh, uh, close family and friends. But anyway, um, on the on the what's happened to uh, um, in, in modern economics. Uh, the well, I think from your perspective, you really want to draw a much firmer line between the libertarian argument for uh, markets, which Hayek, I think, makes, and um, which Milton Friedman has made, and what the mainstream, what the center of gravity is of the mainstream uh, in, in this regard. The mainstream of economics is not libertarian. I mean, maybe scratch an economist deeply enough and you might find a libertarian streak, but the, the, the arguments of welfare economics, of what's conventionally taught by the mainstream, are not libertarian at all. It's all Correct. about, you know, the biggest pie. Now, we have to have a, uh, uh, a refined vocabulary for that, so we talk about Pareto optimality and so forth. But basically we're talking about efficiency, uh, eliminating waste, uh, big pie, how to make the pie bigger. Um, this is not the, the libertarian argument. Agreed. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I think um, uh, the, the libertarians um, or people who are like yourself who are sensitive to those issues, I think, can connect to what I'm arguing even when we disagree. Because at least the, the the grounds of the argument are uh, are uh, clear to both of us, and that is the tension between the individual and the community. And we may come out at different places on it, but at least we're making the same argument. For the economist, there's no such tension because there's no community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think uh, you make the right methodological point about welfare economics, about making the pie bigger. And I was... I was trained at the University of Chicago, and I was trained in that efficiency analysis, the Harbor, Harbor, Harburger welfare triangles, and the, the goal of good economic policy was to make the pie big and, and ignore the distributional consequences of various policies. And I, I've come to reject that intellectually, at, at least as a, as a guide by itself, uh, as I've become more of, a, of an Austrian. I think the, what you're, the way you describe the making of the pie bigger really highlights a view of the economist as engineer. Mm-hmm. And I think your emphasis on experiential knowledge and Schumpeter's and Hayek's as well is that that's... that's only about Keynes. Yeah, and Keynes, yeah. <laughs> that that's a sham. That, that's, yeah. a, uh, that, that's intellectually bankrupt. It's, it's a false... Uh, it's a fantasy. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished at the agreement, but very pleased. 
Well, my guest today has been Stephen Margolin, the Walter S. Barker Professor of Economics at Harvard University, author of The Dismal Science. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.